Thank you, brother. Don't let us down. I have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I have the Holy Spirit. So I'm, my aspiration in life is to live up to Simon's view of me. Hallelujah. I have a picture of my family, I think. We, do we have that up there? We build rapport with people. I'm not sure. We might not have it, but uh, I'll just move on. Um, so first I want to pick on your pastors. Um, I love how only Jesus can produce people that are so honest and, and forthright, so passionate and yet so peaceful at the same time. Only the Holy Spirit can do this, the, the fusion of passion and, and peace. I'm still looking for that balance myself. Uh, they're, they're forthright, they're, they're resilient and steadfast. So if you're visiting, you're in a good place. You're amidst a, a great people. And if you're not visiting, like, you call this church your church, you should totally give. Guest preachers get away with certain things like this in, in, in ways that only we can. Uh, give of your time, of your talent, of your treasure. That, that's a euphemism for money because it's a third T. It works like that. But this is a safe place to go all in, is what I'm saying. And we don't have any time to waste. Let's go, we, we, we've got stuff to do and we can do this together, amen? We can touch this city. I appreciate the amens back. I'm a little, a little less insecure now. So uh, my, I'm actually gonna give you my, my story, just kind of share my background because that actually leads into, oh, here's my family. Awesome, thank you. This is, uh, this is us this summer. Uh, one of the things that people in Texas love to do in the summer is to get out of Texas. And we went to Finland. Um, actually, we were visiting family and friends. And my, my wife's mom uh, grew up in Oregon, but only spoke Finnish until elementary school. In Klotzkanai, Oregon. And so we were visiting family out there. Uh, that's my wife, Alisa, and our four children. Uh, Years ago, the doctor kept telling us we were infertile, and Jesus kept disagreeing, so that's how that happened. Hallelujah. I want to actually tell you my story. It's going to lead into our scripture text today. I actually grew up in Bend, and I subsequently grew out a little bit in Texas. That's a different story, but in describing to my diverse congregation in Texas, over the last 12 years or so, what is Central Oregon? I've always said that it is the center of Caucasia. <laughs> because despite Bend being so geographically and even ethnically isolated, we nevertheless will look down from our, you know, our Cascadian perch and just judge everyone else, because that's how we roll in Bend. Uh, I grew up, I was a son of a, a pro baseball player, and that was my entire identity. I, I had nothing else like guiding my life or any less like kind of tempering my youthful impulses. I thought that the only people who were like religious, in my view, like serious about the rules, I thought they were old people or ugly people. And I was like, man, I'm young and beautiful, so I don't have time to mess around with any of that stuff. But then on September 17th, 1997, 
I found myself somehow in a, a campus ministry gathering, a student-led Bible study at Bend High School. And I went because my friend Josh, he wouldn't shut up about what happened to him and he wouldn't stop inviting me into the whole experience. And operatively, I went to this lunchtime Bible study not as much because I wanted to go as much as I wanted Josh to leave me alone. And consider that for a second as you're praying about how to, to reach out to your friends and neighbors and coworkers. Don't be cute, be relentless. Because y'all, I had no interest in the kingdom of Christ until I was swallowed up by it all. Until I found myself in the gathering and I saw displayed in front of me the, the, the beauty, uh, the, the young people displaying, in fact, coincidentally also not ugly, young people, like uh, one of the girls there would become my wife, um, I saw displayed in them what my heart was desperately lacking I didn't know. And more importantly, I heard the gospel, that Jesus saves sinners. And it had been demonstrated to me so clearly that I was one of them, that I loved that news and I just ate it up like a bag of Cheetos after a fast. And I started the adventure of being his. And, and for me, the, the, the joy of expanding the mystery of how simply and yet profoundly Josh impacted my life simply by enjoying and celebrating Jesus and refusing to shut up about it, I was like, man, I want to expand that, whatever that is. And I've never been the same. Because of that, I'm not just a wannabe baseball player and I'm not just a preacher. And for that matter, I'm not just a husband or a father or an American. My core identity, deeper than I could ever understand about myself, is that I am his. And this is going to lead into our text because over the last almost 24 years, I've allowed so many other things to threaten my core identity things I identify about myself or how I view the world or my American conservative views. I've allowed so many things to sort of mute the power of my true identity. Things that our scripture text is going to speak to really powerfully. And I pray that we would all have a, a sanctified moment of having our feelings hurt a little bit and being restored by the Bible. Amen? Would you prepare your hearts for the scripture and also stand to your feet to honor the reading of the Holy Scripture. We're gonna be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. That's like, we're just gonna camp out in these two verses. Uh, if, you, if you're new to the Bible, just kind of start turning to the right until you get almost to the end. If you get to Revelation or the maps, turn back just a little bit. 1 Peter, it actually looks like 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, would you come now and light up your truth like only you can so that it glows off the pages of our Bibles and burns in our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you give us each specific clarity and bravery with exactly how we are supposed to respond to your mercy, how we are supposed to fully and joyfully surrender to you and to tell of you and to live in the adventure of you. Amen. So I want to do right now is I want to, I want to give a quick overview of the whole book of 1 Peter, and then we'll zoom back on our verses that we just read, okay? This letter was written to a bunch of first century churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, churches that had been under the pastoral care of the elderly apostle Peter. Uh, th- by the time he wrote this letter, he was no longer the impulsive and unwise young man that we read of in, in the gospel accounts. But make no mistake, old dude had not lost his M.O. for being abrupt and to the point. He comes out of the gate swinging in 1 Peter, and he starts with this glorious gut punch of power. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Verse 12, things that have now been announced to you, things into which angels long to look. And so you have this huge magisterial explosion of words, of of this glorious gospel of what God has done. And then, verse 13, Therefore, everyone say therefore, nice. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation or the return of Jesus Christ. And so the rest of the letter, the rest of the book of 1 Peter is really a lot like this, this verse 13 here. It's, a, it's a, an effect of what God has caused. It's the response to what God has done. And so Peter keeps issuing these identity imperatives all throughout the book. It's, it's like, this is who you are now, so do this. This is who you are. Remember, this is who you are, so be like this. The, the entire book really responds to the first 12 verses of chapter 1. The, the glorious gospel account of his great mercy, and then the rest is, therefore... And so read verse 13 again. He's saying, you are sober-minded. He's saying, being sober-minded, that's the identity part. And then comes the imperative, the command. Therefore, set your hope fully on God. So in other words, he's renewed your mind. This is who you are. You are no longer like you were. Maybe there are reasons to be anxious and not full of hope. 
Maybe there's Romans trying to chop off your head. Maybe, maybe the COVID helped, you know, caused you to lose your job. Maybe there are reasons to be anxious, and they're notable, yes. But the reasons to be full of hope are so much greater. So, so set your mind fully on him. That's the imperative, the, the command that comes from a reminder of who you are. You tracking with me? Identity imperatives. And, and y'all, whenever the, the, the Bible commands us to do things, don't allow yourself to feel ashamed that I would have to be told this. Because if God wants to command us to do something, it's a reminder that like, hey, this is hard. It's not automatic. So I have to command you about it. Identity imperatives. Verse 14 of chapter one, you are obedient children. Identity. So don't go back to the way you used to live. Imperative. Or verse 16, God is holy, and it's implied that you are his now, so be holy. That's who you are. You are holy. You're his, so be like you are. How much of the Bible is a command? Be like you really are, not like you think you are, not like you, you see yourself, but be who you truly are. Or chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you are born of him, and so like newborn babies, long for him. And if you're longing for him, put away hate and malicious attitudes and maybe delete the posts from social media. I added that part. Identity imperatives. And then we get to, I think, the height of these identity imperatives. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we've read those verses twice now, and I'm sure you've memorized them. And if you haven't, I think in the next 20-ish minutes or so, there's another opportunity for you to do so because I'm just gonna camp out and go deeper into these verses and I invite you to take notes in your own Bible. We're just gonna just dig deeply into this passage, which I think is like a rich fudge brownie Bible passage here. And I actually have a, a summary of these two verses, my own little paraphrase to help guide us through. It's this sentence right here. In order to display who we truly are, and celebrate the one who made us his, we must remember, everyone say remember. Remember, remember his great mercy. So that again, in order to display who we truly are, that's a, it's gonna be my first point from the first part of, of verse nine, and celebrate the one who made us his. Our calling to tell of him, to evangelize. That's my second point, and that's the second part of verse nine. We must, therefore, remember his great mercy. And that's my third point, verse 10. For type A people that want to know how I'm going, right? So number one, first point, displaying who we truly are, our transcendent identity. So much of our problems, often of the things that we do, are lies that we believe about who we are. And our identity that, that Peter is reminding us of is going to be my, my longest point, by the way. Let's read the first part of verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now let's pause there. 
right away we can at least generally observe that these are really big words, right? Are they not? These are like big magnified words about who we are. One could at a quick glance even kind of accuse Peter Peter of being extra. Uh, I remember a few years ago when a girl came up to me from our campus ministry and she's like, Pastor Peter, you're extra. And so naturally, I, I mean, I know English. I responded, extra what? She rolled her eyes at me and she said, oh, you're such an old. And I was about to ask her another clarifying question until I realized that any response she gave me would just leave me in- increasingly confused. But God bless all y'all Generation Zs. Peter might be being extra here with these big words. Or, or maybe based on what Jesus has actually done in verifiable history, maybe in light of what he's done to make us his and the price that he's paid, maybe in light of that, our tendency to live as if we're less than we really are is the real distortion that he's speaking to accurately. That's the truth. And so let's chew on these words just a few at a time. First of all, He says we are a chosen race. So let's talk about race, shall we? Everyone's favorite topic in public. Now, we can all agree that we have suffered from racial strife in our day. I think ground zero of a lot of grief has been this very city. But let me at least underline that the churches that Peter was writing this to were undergoing racial turmoil at least as painful as what grieves us today. The dividing line in the first century between Jew and Samaritan or Gentile Roman was not just an issue of political correctness, but much like for many oppressed people in our culture today, it was a matter of deep identity and even just survival. Based on the scars of Israelites' past and their recent return from exile, they felt like in order to survive, they had to, to, to guard their, their racial uniqueness. And so when Jesus comes along, and by his blood, he completely destroys all of the racial division without, by the way, erasing the ethnic distinctions. We'll come back to that. When Jesus does all this like only Jesus can, it was a shock to their system to say the least. And so fast forward a few decades, now you have this gathering, this ecclesia, this gathering of churches that now, and this was, this was extremely rare and, and scandalous in any generation, in any culture, you have a group of people that with Jews and Gentiles in the same place, and Peter is saying, y'all, and by the way, he was writing in, in second person plural. So you're welcome for my Texas vernacular properly translating the Bible here. He's saying y'all are a chosen race. That's who you are. You're chosen. You're divinely elected by God. You're chosen by him. It's not qualified by your good choices. You're chosen because you're loved. And he says you're you're a picked out race. And actually the better word to use is you're a chosen generation. And so that means that 
your confidence in who you are doesn't come from your lineage and how you came from the generations of Abraham, but you were generated anew by the Redeemer and Creator Himself. You are a direct lineage to the Creator. You are a chosen generation. Big words, big truths. You're also a royal priesthood. Before Jesus, the Israelite priests, and if you're a Bible nerd, the the Levites, they made sacrifices of animals to, to represent the atoning work on behalf of the rest of the nation. And every culture in, in, in ancient history has known the truth that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We, we have a, a, a legal issue at least before God. And so they would make these sacrifices to represent atonement. But Jesus didn't represent atonement. He became the atonement to fully and finally cancel our debt and and to make us his own. He became the sacrifice to fully and finally atone for our sin and to bring us new life. Now, what happens to us when we actually believe that with real faith? We become born again, as Peter says. We become Uh, generated anew. We become a chosen race. But it doesn't stop there. We we actually also continue to be the extension of his ongoing work of forgiveness and atonement in our culture and in the, the, the nations. We become his lineage, the people sent by the king himself, a royal priesthood. We are going, Paul calls us ambassadors of reconciliation, which is a pretty cool title, right? We are the royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation is the next thing he says. Now the word that's used here in the Greek is the Greek word ethnos, where we get our word ethnicity. When we believe in Jesus, we are the holy ethnos. You need to know that Israel was never holy because of their ethnicity. And many of them before the exile forgot that. They were only holy because the God that chose them and called them out. So the minute they started to walk away from their God, despite their ethnic lineage, they were no longer holy. But when we are born of God by faith in Jesus Christ, we become the holy ethnos. This doesn't mean that our our ethnic distinctions are erased. It means that regardless of our background, those other things, our secondary identities, are subordinated in harmonious worship to Jesus, and they're a platform for displaying the diverse beauty of our holy identity. Those aren't just empty words for me, that... They're pretty powerful knowing how ignorant I grew up, especially after growing up in such an ethnically homogenous place like Bend, Oregon. I love being a part of a global family of churches like Every Nation, an organization, the family of churches that this church is a part of. I love being intimately connected to a friend in the Middle East who's spreading secret churches. I love being intimately connected to my friend Ronnie in Uganda who's just frantically trying to keep up with a revival during a pandemic. 
I love the beauty of the diversity that only the gospel of Jesus can produce. Amen? Hey, yes. If you love it too, say amen. That said, I do think we can risk obsessing over ethnic distinctions too much. Track with me here. Any good thing that God gives us, we can dishonor it, dishonor him by elevating it as more important than him. But we can also dishonor him by trying to erase it. The beauty of our ethnic distinctions are to be neither eliminated nor elevated beyond the giver of the beauty. And ironically, my life is a demonstration that if I try to eliminate the awareness of my ethnic distinction, it might actually prohibit me from seeing things clearly. For far too long, I didn't see how my white American lens through which I saw the world and through which I read the Bible, how much it actually affected how I read the Bible. And I am, for one, very thankful that God has used a diverse church that I've been leading and and, uh, a global family to help me at least to read the Bible better. Listen, whatever your secondary identity, if you're a Christian, any other thing besides the identity of holy nation, whatever that secondary identity, ethnically, politically, nationally, if it's not recognized, so understood, you're not ignorant of it, you know your lens, you know your bias, if it's not recognized and subordinated, placed on the altar as a distinctive part of who you are and how you worship the king, if both of those things don't happen, your secondary identity could become a false identity. And Peter, throughout the book, he keeps calling us aliens and exiles in this book. Literally, the word just means that we're, we're just passing through. And so check this out. Regardless of our, of our diverse backgrounds, which are very different, we have a united destiny. And so don't get too comfortable in your passage through. Don't allow any temporary identity, whether it's privileged or oppressed or a mixture of both, don't allow those to override your holy nation identity. Don't allow it to bog you down on your journey to a greater kingdom, amen? I made it through that part of my notes. But beware too. Because it's way too easy to notice how someone else is confusing their identity, right? It's way too easy to notice how that person over there, you know, uh, I'm, I'm diagnosing how they're distorting things, right? They're confusing their patriotism, their sexuality, their whatever, but it's rare to pray things like, God, they'll stand before you, but Lord, help me expose any lies that I believe and burn away any lies so that I can worship you and not idols. That's what's more rare. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The last thing it says, we are a people for his own possession. My life is not my own. 
I said to keep you on your toes because I got some, I got some, I still have some good preaching to do, so stay with me. Listen, your truest and your deepest identity is definitely not something you do occupationally. And your truest identity is not something that you identify about yourself. It's what he calls you. He knows you deeper than you know yourself, amen? You can't know who you are without increasingly discovering the beauty of whose you're meant to be. In order to display who we truly are and next, celebrate the one who made us his. Let's talk about our calling to celebrate. The second part of verse nine, we are holy, we're, we're chosen, we're, we're royal so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So listen, the purpose of being chosen and set apart by God has a lot also to do with our calling to tell others about it. Listen to what my friend and mentor, Dr. Brian Taylor says. He's our our, uh, pastor of our Every Nation Church in Cincinnati. He says, we weren't just chosen instead of other people, but on behalf of other people. So that means when God set you apart, it was to love you like no one else ever could, amen? But also to love people around you through your proclamation of his goodness, kind of like Josh did for me. And so God set you apart so that he could love others and love you on behalf of others. And just practically, how does that happen? Dig in with me these words. Do some Bible geeking with me for a second. When he says that you may proclaim, that word proclaim, in the King James, it's that you may shoo forth. It sounds a lot like show off, right? That you may show off your Savior. And actually, in the original Greek, that's probably a decent translation because the, the word that we, we translate here, proclaim, is the Greek word exangelo, which means to tell out, to make known by proclaiming or celebrating. I love that. Celebrating. So I say our calling in evangelism and our calling in sharing our faith and not keeping it to ourselves. We're, we're not spiritual hoarders. It's a call to celebrate Jesus. It makes me think of Zacchaeus. It's a rich man that he had an encounter with Jesus, and so he decided to throw a big, scandalous party to tell everyone about him. He was just causing problems with how much he was just excited about Jesus. Or the prostitute from Luke 7, who, who interrupts someone else's lame party, and she just turns up, starts crying at Jesus' feet, just weeping and, and washing his feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair, and she just didn't care. She's totally my person. I think about her all the time. Like, I want my life to reflect that absurdity. Just, I just don't care. Makes me think of my friend Dan, who 10 years ago, he, uh, he was a party animal, and he, at uh, Texas State, uh, I like to say Texas State, uh, you know, people are extra thirsty there. They like to drink extra. But Dan comes to know Jesus, and he just, he didn't stop partying. He just threw bigger parties and invited all his friends into the faith. Some of them were totally annoyed, some offended, but some of them came to know Jesus, and he doesn't stop partying. 
And what I love about Texas is, man, there is a smoked brisket involved. I'm pretty sure that that's what Leviticus is talking about with the, the, the sacrifice and the holy aroma. I'm, I might be confused, but listen, our faith, it's personal, but it's not private. We are to enjoy Jesus publicly. And evangelism can be as simple as a party lifestyle of spreading Jesus FOMO all over the earth. We can be party proclaimers. And check this out too. Pay attention to the words of this verse. It doesn't say Jesus has made you chosen and royal and holy, so now you go do something for him. That is not the tone of the word of God. But why is it that we often think in our anxieties that that's what evangelism is? It's this burden that we're supposed to go do. No, it doesn't say that you should go do something for God. It says, he's made you this way that you may proclaim. One of my joys of what I get to, to witness happen is when Christians will come to like an evangelism equipping like the one we're doing today with food, praise God, and tomorrow night as well. And they come maybe reluctantly like, ah, I'm expecting to maybe get a little guilt about stuff I should be doing. But then they leave totally different like, oh, God showed me some of the things I'm already doing and I can do this. And it's not just about what I should do, but what I can do and what we're doing together. No longer do we just have to go do things for God, but from God, from our place of identity and joy. So like the, like the priestess J-Lo implores us, let's get loud. Let's get loud. Except loud about the truth of our Savior and not about any other foolishness, amen? And now a small note of corrective grace. It says, we, we celebrate or proclaim the excellency of What? of him. And I say, it's hard to proclaim his excellency when your mind or your mouth or your Facebook timeline is filled with other things. And this is something my wife pointed out to me recently, like only a wife can. I was getting so extra angry with my conservative friends in Texas, this is just a problem in Texas, this is not anywhere else. My friends who maybe would talk about conspiracy theories or just other things, instead of just let's do our part in the pandemic and then move on and talk about Jesus. But here's the hypocritical issue. I was so angry with them and how I thought they were muffling their witness for Jesus that my anger towards them caused me to muffle my witness for Jesus. And wifey called me out on it and it hurt my feelings. <laughs> Friend, if you are his, then the calling to tell of him, that's yours. And it's not about performing, it's about displaying and joyfully celebrating him and nothing else, amen? So in order to display who we truly are and celebrate the one who made us his, finally, we must remember his great mercy. Press in with me five more minutes. Because this right here, verse 10, it's the cause of our identity and our imperative to, to tell about it loudly, amen? This is the source 
of the beauty of verse 9. It's verse 10. If we don't possess the, the truth of verse 10, there's no way we can engender the chosen, the royal, the holy identity that produces the, the, the calling to be proclamation, celebration people. So verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're a language nerd, this is what's called a couplet. Two parallel statements declaring one truth in different ways. So the corollary here is that no mercy, no real identity eternally. And operatively, his mercy is what makes us his. Only the gospel can set us right and make us a people. And it makes me actually think about Verse, verse 3 of chapter 1. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Bottom line, his blood, his sacrifice is the only thing that makes us right. If I were to die for my wife, it would be at best a loving gesture. But when Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, died for her, it wasn't just a gesture, it was an act of infinite transformative mercy. When soldiers or police officers or firemen or firewomen lay down their lives for us, they garner for us certain privileges for which we should all be deeply grateful, especially 20 years now after celebrating 9-11, amen? But listen, their sacrifice cannot cause us to be born again. Or put it this way, an earthly priest can tell you you're forgiven. And a life coach can tell you to go forgive yourself. But none of them can absolve the death sentence that I earned and you earned based on your own sin. Only a perfect man, born of a virgin, can offer to trade the outcome of his perfect life for the outcome of our rebellious life. Only Jesus can make a promise like this, an exchange like this, and then actually deliver on it. And that is just what he did. And it's so amazing that it's not even fair. It is mercy, great mercy. And the question is, have, have you received it? Is it yours? Is it yours and are you his? Are you born again? Does your life demonstrate that you're chosen, holy, royal? And are you celebrating that? Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, show us how to respond even now. Lord, the circumstances of the world around us can be dire, or they can be happy. They can be prosperous or they can be terrible. And yet, if we know the greater truth of whose you've called us to be, and if we anchor in deeply, then neither life nor death nor angels nor demons can speak a second word that affects us in any real way. And Lord, I confess that I've allowed 
secondary things to take primary space in my mind. And I ask that you would forgive me, set me right, and Lord, do a revival in me and in us. Lord, I pray that you would give each person here specific clarity with how they're to respond. And do a revival in us for the sake of our community. May your kingdom come and your will be done in Portland as in in heaven. Amen. Amen.